I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. This show is an exploration of deals in the private markets. Through conversations with private equity managers, we'll dive into individual deals to learn about deal dynamics, companies, and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. You can keep up to date and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of Capital Allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's Private Equity Deals, Scott Crable dives into RealPage. Scott is a managing partner at Toma Bravo, the software and technology specialist with $120 billion in assets under management. He joined Toma Bravo 20 years ago to help develop its software investment strategy. RealPage is a technology platform that enables real estate owners and property managers to efficiently operate residential assets. In 2021, Toma Bravo took the company private from the public markets for $10.2 billion, which at the time was the largest transaction in the firm's history. Our conversation covers the history of RealPage, its ownership structure, competitive positioning, and differentiators as a business. We discuss Toma Bravo's sourcing, deal dynamics, and first year of ownership that included a management transition, operational improvements, tuck-in acquisitions, and a change in capital structure. We close discussing Toma Bravo's exit strategy down the road. Please enjoy my conversation with Scott Crable. Scott, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, let's get started. Why don't we do the short version of Toma Bravo for a quick update on the firm and where you guys are today? Yeah, absolutely. Just a little bit on our history. We started in 1998. Carl Toma spun out of Golder Toma, which had changed its name to GTCR by 1998. And really with that buy and build strategy that he had pioneered, along with Stan Golder, where creative value through industry consolidations with a private equity focus, leverage buyouts, control investing, and a real management partnership approach. Back at GTCR, they'd actually identified the management team before identifying the target. We flipped the script on that to go the other way, but a real management-centric approach. And we made our first software investment in 2002 when that industry really started to consolidate and we saw the ability to apply that buy and build strategy to the software sector. And it worked well. We became a software specialist, software and technology in 2008. So about six years later, um, we toggled to 100% software focus. And today, we manage about $115 billion in assets in that software space. We've completed about 400 software acquisitions across platforms and add-ons, representing nearly $200 billion of value. We have three software buyout funds today, our flagship fund, which is for large enterprise software businesses, Tomo Bravo Discover, which is our mid-market buyout fund, Tomo Bravo Explore, which is our lower mid-market fund, and then we have a credit fund and a growth equity fund focused on software as well. We're at a Three offices, San Francisco, Chicago, and Miami. And look, our strategy is really to create value by investing in innovation, to drive organic growth, leveraging our operational processes and metrics and our operations group to drive efficiencies and margin expansion and best-in-class operations, and then to augment that all with the buy-and-build strategy and add-on acquisitions. We have about 200 employees today, 85 investment professionals, 35 or so operating partners and advisors, and split between those three offices. Great. Well, we're going to dive into one of those relatively recent acquisitions, RealPage, and maybe start with a quick description of the company and a history of the company before you guys got involved. So RealPage, the company was started in 1998, which ironically is the same year that Tomo Bravo was started. So we have a parallel history in that regard. It was started by Steve Wynn, who started the business by acquiring another company. He bought a company called Rent Roll. And Steve was the entrepreneur and CEO of the business until we bought it in 2020. But what the company's become over the last 25 years is the leading provider of software, data, 
technology and value-added services to the rental real estate industry, primarily around residential units as opposed to commercial units. So that can be multifamily apartment buildings. It can be single-family rental units. It can be student housing, affordable housing, military housing, and even vacation units. And the products serve primarily property managers is who they're mostly sold into, but they also serve and are sold into property owners, renters, prospects, rental prospects, and even service providers, you know, those providers that kind of service the the buildings and the units. They started like all good software companies by automating the core back office business processes around property management and that property management workflow. So things like accounting, budgeting, document management, lease management, procurement, facilities management, those back office operations like most software industries. And that was mostly for the property manager. Then they added some products for the property owner, like a revenue management product, which is a data analytics product that helps in decision-making around pricing of rental units and a business intelligence product that allows owners to kind of see the real-time how their properties are doing. And then importantly, they added renter services, which has become a big part of their business. So things like online payments, so you don't have to go down to the business office and drop off your check. You can make payments online, seamless rental insurance built into the product, utility billing management, and a rental portal, a resident portal where residents can go to kind of streamline their living experience. And then they even expanded into products for prospects. So lead generation type products, lead management, a customer relation management system to track prospects, screening capabilities to understand their capacity to continue to pay, virtual tours, online leasing. And most recently, they've gotten into the smart building part of the market where they can allow tenants to kind of have the ability to do everything on an app from getting into the building to getting into your apartment to managing your heating and air conditioning system to opening and closing your shades, Wi-Fi, water management, leak detection, those types of products as well. So it's a company with 30 plus products, pretty diversified, and they provide pretty much everything that a property manager would need to run there residential units. So it sounds like they've built up soup to nuts across everything in this rental market ownership. What's the competitive landscape like? It's a pretty fragmented market at the tail of it, but at the top of the of the chain, it's a pretty consolidated market. So if you think about RealPage, they really started in the mid to large property management part of the market and they serve those enterprise customers. And in that part of the market, there's really one other significant competitor. So it's kind of a two horse race with number three, four, five uh, distant third, fourth, and fifth. And then in the lower part of the market, so RealPage about two, three years ago, bought a company called Buildium, which serviced the SMB part of the market. And that part of the market is similar in that there are really two market leaders in that space, Buildium being one of them, and then number three, four, five, or a distant three, four, five. But then in terms of all the point solutions, those 30 different point solutions, there are a lot of small vendors that provide a point solution. But in terms of having the entire soup to nuts product set, it's really a couple of folks in each part of that market. So you mentioned Steve founded the business and ran it until your ownership. What was the ownership structure like and how did he finance these acquisitions along the way? Yeah. So the company, again, started in 1998 with that acquisition of rent roll. In about 2001, they developed their core property management system, the OneSite system. And between 2001, when they developed that system and 2010, when they actually went public, they made about 14 acquisitions. So acquired a bunch of these point solutions to bring it all together in a suite. And the capital structure, Steve owned most of the business. He raised a little bit of venture capital. Apex actually came into the business in 2008, made an investment in the business to help them make a few of these acquisitions. And then the company went public in 2010. And at the time, Steve owned about 50% of the business. Apex owned probably about 20% of the business. And then they sold 10 to 20% to the 
to the public. It was about $150 million business at the time, valued around $700 million in enterprise value. And from 2010 to 2020, when we bought the business, they financed through the public markets. And they actually were very successful making acquisitions as a public company as well. So for the three years prior to our purchase of the business, 2017 or so to 2020, they made another 12 acquisitions. And between 2010 and 2017, probably 15, 20 acquisitions as a public company. And they financed it with a mix of debt capital, cash flow, cash from the balance sheet, issuing a little bit of equity. They're one of those rare public software companies that is successful in making a bunch of acquisitions. Typically, the public market is a little bit reticent to support those acquisitions, but they were able to do it. So as you were thinking about this deal, what did you see as the most attractive features of RealPage? First and foremost, we love vertical market software. You go back to 2002, vertical market application software. So essentially the software that runs the business processes of a specific industry rather than horizontal across many different segments. Lots of barriers to entry. You codify the business processes in the software and it really runs those businesses, super mission critical. So we love vertical market software. This was our first venture into the real estate space and we love verticals. That's number one. Number two, real estate is just a huge, huge market. Incredible market opportunity compared to other verticals and really stable. It's underpinned by $500 billion in rents paid per year. And it's about, a, we estimated about a $20 billion total available market opportunity for software and technology, which dwarfs most verticals. And only about $4 billion of it is served today. So only about 20% penetration in the market. And then you have really nice tailwinds behind that market opportunity. So you have very consistent unit growth that underpins that market about two to 3% new units per year. Then you have rental rate growth as well, three to 4% increase in rental rates per year. That's obviously significantly higher today. And there's a bit of an existential shift from ownership to rental. Millennials prefer renting over ownership as compared to the previous generation. So really, really good tailwinds in that regard. And the market's at the very beginning of a digital transformation, very low penetration, new technologies like IoT, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, machine learning are now starting to be applied to the the space. And there's so many business processes to automate and so many constituents. You see those 30 products. It's pretty unique to see that many products being sold into a vertical market. So that's number two. Number three is the clear market leader. We talked about how they're one of two in the enterprise space and one of two in the SMB space. They have been selling on-demand software recurring revenue, cloud-based software since the early 2000s before cloud was was even a thing. They had that end-to-end product portfolio and leadership at both the high end and the mid end of the market. And then super stable, super predictable top line. And we saw the ability to kind of accelerate growth through innovation, drive efficiencies, make more acquisitions, incredibly fragmented market. So we saw the opportunity to execute on our typical playbook here. So you have what sounds like characteristics of like a dream company to own, right? You have got this this vertically integrated software with a market leader and a massive opportunity set and growing. Were there any issues that you saw with the company? Yeah, for sure, as there always are. One of the interesting issues and also one of the catalysts for the deal here is the company was planning to go through a management transition and a leadership transition. Steve had started the business in 1998. He was an entrepreneur turned CEO. He ran the business for 25 years, 12 years as a private company, 13 years as a public company. And he was ready to hand over the reins of the day-to-day of the business. And he'd started to make that planning with the public board. So that was part of the catalyst for having the deal opportunity here. But that obviously creates some risk and some complication in terms of buying a business where you know you have to go through a leadership transition and bring in a new CEO. And then that can potentially cause some of the senior execs to look elsewhere as well. So that probably means you have to bring in more senior execs. So having to understand that and execute on that was an issue we had to deal with. Second was 
the company had been incredibly successful with those acquisitions. As I mentioned, 12, 14 acquisitions before they went public, 12 acquisitions in the last three years. They really expanded their product portfolio and their market share and their ability to serve customers. But it also added a lot of complexity into the mix. And we had to understand you know, how tightly integrated were these businesses and where did we need to take that over our ownership period and, and investment period from a technology standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, from a pricing and packaging standpoint, and even from a service delivery standpoint. How were those acquisitions managed and how were they integrated and how would that impact our ability to drive efficiencies across the business? Also, because of the acquisitions, they had a very complex group of systems. So they had 16 different billing systems and extracting information, comparing and contrasting across all those systems was complex. And then probably the biggest thing was COVID. This was the third, fourth quarter of 2020. And COVID had obviously, you know, hit in March, April. So that added some complexity and some risk to the mix from a macro standpoint, both with where was GDP going at the time, also what was happening in the real estate market at the time, some of the leading indicators that we looked at, housing sales went down by 20% in April. Housing starts went down by 45% in April. Those things were just recovering in September, October, November, when we started working with the company. I think housing starts were back to about 10% lower than the pre-COVID levels, and housing sales had actually exceeded the the pre-COVID levels, but we had to think about how was COVID going to impact this market. And there were some positives to that as well, right? People were paying online, they were wanting to do virtual tours, there were lighter touch, and you really needed technology to kind of automate those processes. So there were some puts and takes that we had to think about through the diligence process. How does that diligence process work in a public to private transaction like this? Well, this one was a bit unique. The way we approached the company and engaged with the company was on a proprietary basis, on a spontaneous basis, and we entered into a due diligence process where the company wasn't really prepared for it. With a public company or private company, oftentimes when they're ready to sell the business, they're very planful about it. They think about it a year in advance. Six months in advance, they start preparing. They hire an investment banker. They put together all the materials and the data that you're going to need for a buyer to potentially understand the business that they can show to a bunch of different buyers. Here, they weren't prepared for it because we approached them on a one-off proprietary basis, and we entered into a very rapid due diligence process, so about three weeks of due diligence. So it became about us sort of working collaboratively with the management team to help them come up with the diligence information that we needed and help them pull info from the billing systems and and the data we needed to work our underwriting model and to diligence the issues and opportunities with the business. So let's circle back. How does this come about that you approach a public company and in rapid period of time, you know, end up working towards a deal. So this is a company you probably knew for a long time. I'm just curious how that process works. Yeah. It's a company that came on our radar really in a big way when they went public in 2010. I mean, the way we operate is we have investment teams that are focused, at least on the application software side, on particular vertical markets. So we have a team that is focused on the real estate vertical. And so they know everybody in that space. They know the dynamics of the industry. They're looking to source a platform opportunity in that space. And so we have that deal team have been tracking the company since it went public in August of 2010. And the company performed very well as a publicly traded company. They grew nicely. They improved their margins over time. They were very successful making acquisitions. The company always traded very well. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for us at the time to come in and pay a premium and take them out of the public market. But we continually would reach out to Steve really over that 10-year period. And we would talk to him and we would ping him and he would occasionally respond. Occasionally, he would ignore us. We would see him in Dallas one or two times a year. or Maybe he came out here to San Francisco for a conference and we would sit down with him. And they were cordial meetings. And I think for him, it was mostly about 
getting some market intelligence around acquisition opportunities because we were in the market looking at some of the same deals that he was looking at. So he wanted to hear what we were seeing and what we were thinking and how private equity was thinking about these deals. But we developed a good relationship with him and always had it at the very top of our wish list. And then just coincidentally, I mean, they say in real estate, location, 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 in private equity, it's timing, timing, timing. And that combination of, I think, COVID, and then more importantly, they started that succession planning, opened the door a little bit, and we happened to stick our foot in at the right time. And just so you can see how this sort of timing thing works, I think we had another one of those reach outs to him in September of 2020. And it was one he kind of ignored, right? He responded, yeah, hey, thanks for reaching out. We're all good. Let's talk later. And then we reached out again in November of 2020, and he engaged, and they were ready to engage. And they just were at the right time in their cycle to think, okay, let's think about this. Maybe being a private company when we go through this leadership transition is a better way to go. And the stock was trading at an all-time high. So if you can get a nice premium off of that, it's great for the shareholders. And so we engaged. It was clear that they were open to an offer. We made a proposal, negotiated that proposal a little bit, got it to the point where they were comfortable letting us into due diligence. We had three weeks of due diligence, and they actually hired the investment banker after we entered into the diligence process. So we'd already gone through a bit of a negotiation. I think we started at 80, we ended up at 85. We got into diligence, they hired a banker, and then they continued to negotiate with us through that due diligence process. But it was a negotiated deal. They did not reach out to other parties at the time to test the bids or or to shop the deal. They did that after we signed the transaction to satisfy their fiduciary duty. So for perspective, how many different companies or executives of companies would you say you guys regularly meet with without ever knowing if something's going to happen? Yeah, it happens a lot. These deals can happen in 10 weeks. They can happen in 10 years. But each of our deal teams, which we have in the flagship fund, five deal teams, across the sectors that they cover, they probably have a list of about 200 companies each that they're regularly reaching out to and looking to source opportunities off of. These are companies that would kind of fit our profile in terms of size and scale, quality of revenue, market leadership position, ability to consolidate around. And so they're regularly talking to those companies and we're looking to do three or four deals a year. Those are kind of the metrics. And then how do you prepare to have enough information so that you can do like a full due diligence process in just three weeks? <laughs> well, oftentimes you're having to, in that period of time, like for RealPage over that 10-year period, it really has to be all outside in because we haven't signed an NDA. We don't have access to confidential information. With a public company, there's a little bit more information available. You can read the 10Qs, you can read the 10Ks, you can listen to the earnings calls, you can read the research reports. Sometimes we'll hire a consultant to do a study on the market in a particular industry so we can get smart on it before we would potentially engage in a deal process. We're talking to industry participants on a regular basis, understanding the competitive dynamics of the market, who's winning share, who's losing share, where's the market going from a product and technology perspective. And so we just try to get as smart as we can. But the reality is it's like an iceberg, right? I mean, you're only able to get smart on 20%. And then once you dig in and get an NDA sign and you're really able to get non-public information, then you it's the 80% that you really need to, to really dig in on. So the 10 years of work got us 20% of the way there. And then the three weeks of work got us the other 80%. And I can imagine that you probably couldn't answer every question you'd like to in those three weeks. So how do you either triage what you do the diligence on? And then what do you do with those unresolved questions afterwards? Yeah, that's right. I mean, some questions you can answer with a lot of authority and confidence, and some you have to make some judgments around. And so in the case of RealPage, what we really wanted to do in the diligence process was validate the organic growth of the business because the company had made acquisitions. So some of the growth was coming from acquisitions, some of it was coming organically. And when you're putting together your underwriting model, you need to understand, you know, what the business is going to do without making acquisitions and then how you can 
add to that with acquisitions. We also wanted to really understand the retention rate. We look for businesses with highly recurring revenue streams, mission-critical products that customers want to keep in place and rarely, rarely rip out. So we look for very high retention rate businesses. And I'd say we can contrast those two. We were able to validate the organic growth with 100% confidence. We had the data, you know, we were able to parse it out and understand the company was growing X percent organically and then X percent through acquisitions. The retention was a little bit more difficult because of the 16 billing systems that the company had. So we we're pulling data from a bunch of different systems. And then there was also a dynamic where in the real estate market, the properties change ownership pretty often. So about 20, 30% of the units kind of churn every year from an ownership perspective. And the way the data worked in their system is when someone sold a unit, it was a churn. And then when someone bought it, it was kind of a new deal. Or really the way we look at it is the company kind of retained that unit. It's just a different owner. So there was a factor in there that we had to estimate. We had to judge it at the end of the day. We didn't have perfect data, but we had enough that we were able to feel comfortable that with our judgment layered over it, that this was a super high retention business, 95% plus. So that's how we did it in this case. So you approach the company to do this deal on a proprietary basis. You mentioned it's trading at the highest it ever had. Clearly, the economics of the business are great. They've been growing. How in the world do you think about valuation, knowing you have to pay a premium to the highest the public market's paid on a business that's doing well? Well, you got to be able to do something different with the business, obviously. And so you're right. In this case, the company had always traded well. It was a public company, so you can read all this in the proxy. We were paying a 30% premium to the current stock price at the time. It was about a 30% premium to the all-time high because the business was traded at an all-time high. It was 100% premium to the COVID trough. Like everything in April of, of 2020, the stock price got cut in almost in half and quickly rebounded. And it was a high multiple of revenue and EBITDA, and it was a full price for a private equity perspective. And so we felt we could do some interesting things with the business. One, continue to invest in innovation, things like this smart building technology, IoT, artificial intelligence that were on the horizon that we felt could could help the company accelerate organic growth. And we felt we could drive some operational efficiencies in the business. So when we bought the business, they were generating about 25% cash flow margin. And we felt pretty confident that investing in automation, integrating those acquisitions, collapsing the organizational structure a little bit into a more of a functional structure rather than a business unit structure with all those products being managed separately, that we could drive margin improvement, which we've done to the tune of about a 35% margin today. So in a year that we've owned the business, revenue has grown 20%, about half organic, half inorganic, but cash flow has grown 50% organically and 75% inorganically. And then we've also continued the acquisition program. So we made four acquisitions, kind of a similar cadence to what they were doing pre our ownership about four and 12 months. So you got to have a value creation strategy and the ability to continue the great things that they were doing and maybe augment in some areas where you feel maybe you can manage it in a different way. So just to put some color on the numbers, what was that EBITDA multiple you guys paid? Yeah. So the business, it was about a $10 billion enterprise value. The business at the time was doing about one and a quarter billion in revenue and probably about 350 million of EBITDA. So around an eight times revenue multiple, around a 30 times EBITDA multiple, which with that 50% cash flow growth at 35% margins today is more like a 20 times multiple. It was a full price at the time, and we feel we've been able to bring that down a little bit with the operations of the business. So let's talk about this deal dynamic. So you you agree to this. You've spent 10 years with the CEO. You finally get the right time. You're paying a really full price, but you still don't know for sure if you're going to get the deal, right? Because they have this go shop. What was that period of time like for you guys? It was nerve-wracking, as it always is, but it was a little extra nerve-wracking here for a couple of reasons. One, as I mentioned, we paid a full price for the business. So we felt from a 
private equity competition standpoint, others could potentially match the price we paid, but they probably wouldn't be able to exceed the price we paid, at least not in a material way. But there are always strategics that you worry about. And there was one particular strategic here that we were concerned about. It was a company in the ecosystem that was a $40 billion enterprise value business, trading at a very high 20-plus revenue multiple, had been very acquisitive, had been very entrepreneurial, had shown a willingness to compete with private equity publicly in a potential transaction. So we were a little bit nervous about at least one strategic and maybe some others as well. And the other thing that complicated this deal was I talked a little bit about their payments product. About a third of the revenue of the business is their payments product. And they actually, as part of that workflow, they take possession of the rent payment from the rentor and then remit it back to the property manager and owner. And because they're in the flow of funds, we had to have a money transmitter license in 33 states. The company had those licenses, but with the change of ownership, we had to get new licenses with Tomo Bravo being the control investor. And some states will get it done in two to three months, but some states will take five months. And we really couldn't close the deal until we got all those licenses in place. So a normal public to private investment takes about two months to from signing to close. You have to raise the debt. You have to get through antitrust process. You have to get through the proxy process. You need to have a shareholder vote. That can usually happen in two months. And in that period of time, you are subject to potential competitors coming in, whether there's a go shop or not. In this case, we had 45 days of go shop, but five months to close the deal. So we could have been subject to competition for those full five months. Now, in the go shop process, it's a lower break fee, so it's a lower barrier to entry, a little bit higher break fee during the non-go shop process, but still not a huge barrier to potential strategic that wanted to own the business. So what happened in those five months? The go shop process went through. They had meetings. They showed the opportunity to some financial firms. They showed it to the strategic firms. There were some discussions. There was some due diligence done. But at the end of that process, there was no competing bid. Now, the strategic that we were worried about was a little bit distracted with another deal that they were working. And it was very public competition with a private equity firm. So we may have benefited from that, but nothing came of that go shop process. And then it was relatively quiet during the next three, four months of the money transmitter license process. But we're paranoid, like Andy Grove, only the paranoid survives. So we worry about things even when they aren't necessarily <laughs> you know, reality at the time. So there's another side of it. In this case, you had this five-month process. There weren't other competing strategic bids. If it were a year and a half later or so, what might have happened if the changing market conditions and multiples in the public markets had collapsed the way they did in the fall of last year through where we are today in terms of the price you paid and, and that deal dynamic? Impossible to really say. A business like RealPage, a growing business with attractive profit margins, those businesses have held up relatively well. When I say relative, relative to more of the growth businesses that are losing money or not generating a profit. So I'm not sure that the price would have been that much different. And it's hard to say what the competitive set might have looked like today versus at the time. From a more historical perspective, you mentioned this full price where the market was to buy this company. In the earlier years of Toma Bravo, what would that comp have been? You're paying, say, a 30 times EBITDA going to 20 times in a year if you're successful. What did that look like in the early noughts for roughly the same type of business? It was a lot different. And we look at businesses more on pro forma basis based on where we're going to take the business from a margin perspective. So we were probably looking at RealPage more in the 20s rather than the high end number that I quoted. If you go back to 2002, 2003, 2004, that was the beginning of the software buyout market. It was after the dot-com bubble had burst. Software was really out of favor, out of vogue. And it was for the first five, six years of our time in the in the business. Obviously, that changed and then it got out of vogue again. 
again during the global financial crisis. And then with the advent of cloud technology, that's really, the market has really exploded over the last 10 years. And I think will continue to explode in the next 10, 20 years. But when we first got into the business, you couldn't borrow money because no one viewed software as an asset based business. And they only wanted to lend to companies with heavy assets that they could could lend against. And eventually they figured out the recurring revenue, the maintenance contracts, and now the subscription contracts are really an asset of the business. It's one of the most highly leverageable business models that there is. But our first deal, we borrowed, I think, one times EBITDA for the business. And we paid probably 10 times for the business. And it was 10 times then is now in the 20s for sure. So the software market's grown from about 100 billion in revenue to 500 billion in revenue and valuations have at least doubled over that period of time. So let's turn to your ownership of the business once you get the transaction done. You mentioned a couple of things in the game plan. I guess the first, the impetus for the transaction was this management transition. How did you work through that process? That's super interesting. When we we bought the business, we worked with Steve, and Steve was incredible all throughout and helped us de-risk it by saying, hey, I'll stick around for a year and run this business if you need me to. I'm not going to leave you high and dry without a CEO when you when you close the deal. So that gave us a lot of air cover, so to speak. And then it became one of those situations where all the stars align. It doesn't normally happen this way, but everything really fell into place here for us from a management perspective. We ended up hiring Dana Jones, and Dana's an incredible executive. She's known to Toma Bravo because she ran a Toma Bravo portfolio company, a company called Sparta Systems that sells quality management software into the life sciences space, so pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, another one of these vertical market software businesses that we love so much. It was a really successful investment for us, a company we bought in 2014, Dana joined in 2018, and we eventually sold Sparta to Honeywell in early 2021. And Dana is an exceptional software CEO. So that's on the Toma Bravo side, how we knew Dana. And then coincidentally, Dana lives in Dallas, Texas, which is where RealPage is headquartered. Steve Wynn met Dana and recruited her to join the RealPage board in 2019. So she knew the company had been on the board for about a year and a half when we ended up buying the business. So she was the best candidate we could have possibly imagined for the job, first and foremost. We knew her because of Sparta. She was available because we had just sold Sparta, coincidentally. One did not have anything to do with the other, and it was bought by a strategic. She lived in Dallas, and she knew RealPage super well. So that all kind of came together really, really well. And we hired Dana. So Steve did run the business for us for about four months. We closed the deal in May. Dana joined in September. And it actually ended up being a two-for-one for us because Vineet Doshi, who was the COO, at Sparta. And he and Dana had worked together years ago at Sabre. He joined us as well as COO of RealPage. And Dana and Vineet work really, really well together. So we got two really strong executives out of the gate here. And then like with every company, when there's a change in ownership, change in direction, change in leadership, you go from public to private, that's great for some of the executives and leaders, and they really embrace the change, and it's the right thing for them and the next part of their career. And for some, it's not the right thing, and it's more of a catalyst for them to go find the next great opportunity, and they want to do something different. It's a catalyst for them to do something different. So the management team now, beside Dana and Vineet, about half the folks are RealPage alums. They were at RealPage when we bought the business, and about half are new executives from other software businesses that are bringing new ideas into the mix. And that took about 12 months for that all to shake out. It's a lot of work. It's stressful. But you get to the point where you kind of have the full team on the field at the end of that 12 months, and that's where we are today. And then how did you go about sequencing some of the operational efficiencies and integration of all these acquisitions RealPage had done before? Yeah, it's a work in process. 
still. When we buy a business, oftentimes over the first 12 months, there's a lot of activity. So we're going through this process sometimes with management, and we're going through this process of making a couple of quick acquisitions, and we're going through the process of making some operational changes to drive efficiencies and improve the business and kind of operate in that best-in-class way. And a lot of those are being implemented over that 12-month period. And so that's where we are with RealPage. We're still in that first 12 months, and we're making those changes, integrating the acquisitions, really taking the org charts and putting them together, making them a little bit more functional, doing things like cross-training service professionals so that they can implement more than one product across the portfolio, bringing to bear some artificial intelligence tools into the customer support organization so customers can serve themselves and serve more quickly, bringing some product integration into the technology organization so roadmaps are happening in technology. But those are not overnight fixes. Those are processes that you implement, that you start operating towards, and over 12, 24 months, you're really getting there. So I know it's early, but it's very rare that even a successful deal doesn't have surprises and hiccups along the way. Wondering if there's anything that's come up that's thrown you for a loop since you bought it. Nothing dramatic. I think we have some of those operational aspects that we uncovered during due diligence that we wanted to make changes around. Those have come into more specific relief. And, you know, it always sometimes is 10% more complex. Sometimes it's not quite as complex. So those things have happened. The industry is evolving in many ways because of COVID. So we're understanding some of these changes and pointing our M&A capabilities at some of these changes. So one that I talked about before is this smart building capability. We view it as really important with everything that's happened in the market to be a leader in that part of the market. So we made four acquisitions just in the smart building area to be able to be that technology provider that allows for keyless entry, allows for waste management, allows for operating your shades and your HVAC system on an app. We have a partnership with Airbnb where those technologies are enabling sharing and monetizing units from a vacation perspective and the owner and the property manager get a cut of that revenue. There are changes happening in the way leasing and prospecting is done. So it used to be that each property had a leasing team at the facility. And when a renter wanted to look for a property, they had to engage with a different team at each facility and go do a tour. And now the property managers are more centralizing that approach where one rental team can handle multiple properties and can take a prospect through virtual tours at multiple properties and helps them become more efficient. But there's a change that needs to happen in the technology to enable that type of approach rather than the single building approach. So there are things from a technology perspective that we're working to be a leader in those types of areas. So those are a couple of examples. There's a bunch of changes happening both in the real estate markets and obviously the rate environment. I'm curious how you're thinking about the financing of the business relative to what's happening with the Fed increasing rates. In terms of financing the business, we finance it with a combination of equity and debt capital, about two-thirds equity, one-third debt capital. So heavily equitized, pretty conservative capital structure. We did a first lien, second lien, Goldman Sachs underwrote it and syndicated it. What's happening in the market today in many ways is a positive for the business with interest rates going up. There is a cost of ownership is going up. Obviously, mortgages are more expensive. And so that kind of monthly outlay to own a, a property is, is going up, which is driving more people into the rental market, which in turn is driving rental rates up from that 3 4% that I referenced earlier to up into the kind of high single digits today. Much of RealPage's revenue is tied to those rental rates. So as those rates go up, that impacts RealPage's revenue in a positive way. We kind of think about 2 to 3% unit growth plus 3 to 4% rental rate growth plus new customer acquisition plus new product penetration plus cross-sell. That's the organic growth metric for the business. And to the extent one of those is higher, that is helpful for the business, drives incremental revenue growth and drives cash flow to the bottom line. 
So in many regards, that gives us more debt capacity to then go out and make acquisitions and bring new innovative technologies into the into the mix, which is what we typically try to do. These software companies generate a lot of cash. They grow your EBITDA multiple in terms of your ability to borrow money increases over time, and you can make acquisitions with, with debt capital and drive equity value that way. Given the nature of the business, the critical infrastructure for the industry, I'm curious how you chose that, what sounds like a pretty light debt load for such a recurring revenue business. We did lever the business. I wouldn't say super aggressive because we do like to leave a little bit of room so that we can have a little bit of capacity to make some acquisitions right out of the gate. But we talked about what the business was like back in 2002, where you could borrow one times EBITDA, you have to put in nine turns of, of equity. It got to the point in the mid 2000s, 2006, 2007, where you could borrow six, seven times and maybe put six, seven turns of equity in the business. So it was about a 50-50 capital structure. The debt multiples have gone up maybe a little bit since then. So maybe seven, seven and a half times. But with EBITDA multiples in terms of enterprise value in the 20s, you're naturally going to have a bit of an upside down capital structure because the rest of that has to be funded with equity. So while we, we typically are a little bit conservative in terms of the debt capital we raise because we want to be able to use additional capacity to make acquisitions, we're not super, super conservative. I'm really curious about your internal decision-making on this deal. It's one of the largest deals you've done as a healthy component of equity. So it's obviously going to be critical to your results. What are the factors that come into play when you guys decide either to pull the trigger on something that's so significant or not, or to take a pass? Obviously, it was stressful making an investment decision on a $10 billion deal. At the time, it was the largest deal we'd done in the history of the firm. About a year later, we surpassed that with another public company, Proofpoint, that we offered $12 billion. And we had some co-investors, some a limited partner perspective in the deal. Not all the equity came from Tom Bravo, so we're a fiduciary for them as well. So that adds a little bit of stress to the mix. But at the end of the day, our underwriting criteria and our investment value creation criteria has remained the same for the last 20 years. So it's really about sticking to our knitting, understanding what we like in a business, understanding the diligence issues that we're looking for, that organic growth, that retention rate, the recurring revenue, the competitive landscape, their competitive position, the organic growth rate, getting underneath all those things and finding what we like in a business, which is market leadership, super high quality revenue, super sticky products, a good management team, the ability to make some operational improvements, and a fragmented market where we can create value through acquisitions. If those things are there, whether it's a $200 million deal, billion dollar deal, $10 billion deal, that's how we get comfortable and get conviction around buying the company. And with RealPage, we had all those things in spades. So despite the fact that it's a big deal and we had a short period of time to conduct due diligence, we had a lot of conviction around it by the end. So it's clearly off to a good start. And I'm curious how you think through what happens from here in terms of your potential exit down the road. Yeah. So we're relatively early in the process. We're about 15 months in. We're typically thinking about four or five year type underwrites. And so right now we're really focused on business building and we're deep into that business building process in terms of getting the management team right, getting the org structure right, getting the operational processes right, getting the product and innovation right and making some of those changes in what's happening in the market and codifying that into the product and technology and then making the right acquisitions to continue consolidating the market and continue innovating around all the great stuff that's happening in the real estate software market and if it's not being developed at RealPage we can buy it and integrate it into the product set that way. So that's what we're really focused on. We always think about if we build a great business, the exit will kind of reveal itself. You don't necessarily plan the exit at the beginning. 
But for this business, like with most of our businesses, we think about potential sale to a strategic buyer, maybe that strategic buyer that we were worried about when we <laughs> when we bought the business will still be interested, you know, in four or five years. There's always a robust financial buyer market for software. I mean, software is highly coveted by most financial buyers. There are club deals that are happening today if the deal becomes a large an even larger company than it is today. And then this company could go public again. It could be a re-IPO story. We did that with one of our vertical market software businesses recently, a company called Instructure that sells software into the K-12 and university market. We took the business private, made some changes, some acquisitions, took the company public again, and that could happen here for RealPage. It's a, a business that the public market liked and valued, and hopefully when we were bring it back out, it'd be twice the size and higher margin, more predictable, more stable and scalable operational processes, and attractive to the public markets as well. Scott, I'd love to hear any of your key takeaways from this transaction so far. Yeah, there are a lot. I'd say one is you can buy a $10 billion public company on a negotiated proprietary basis. And that's not something that we necessarily knew at the time. Often that works with private companies. It hasn't worked historically with public companies. And that was a big learning for us. And again, a year later, we did the same thing with a $12 billion deal. And the board's able to satisfy their fiduciary duty by getting a great price for the business and then having a go shop. That was a big learning for us. In our last fund, I think first nine deals, seven of them were proprietary and a number of them were public companies. So that was huge. And then some lessons you need to kind of keep learning over and over again, right? And in the private equity business, I think persistence and patience really can pay off. And sometimes you meet a company for the first time and there's a deal there three months later, but sometimes it takes 10 years. And if you're persistent and patient, it pays off. And we even had one more recently where we've been in contact with the company for 20 years and finally we're able to buy the business. So that's probably number two. Scott, it's a really interesting story. It'll be fun to see how this plays out over the next couple of years. And maybe when that time comes, we'll get you back on and talk about what happened. Before I let you go, I have one question we like to ask, which is what is your favorite aspect of private equity? For me, it's been a bit of a moving target which maybe is the best thing I can say about private equity is there's so much to like about it. But I think what attracted me to the job in the first place was really the quantitative aspect of finance. I was really a math and science guy in school and studied engineering in college. And I loved the, the modeling and the financial analysis and being in that back room doing the quant part of the deal. And that was when I was in my 20s. And, and then I got really excited about the technology and software aspect, the industry-specific aspect of the business, and really the innovation that was happening at these companies. And maybe that was part of being out here in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and getting caught up in, in that hype. But I think eventually and today, it's really the social aspect of private equity that I love and just the constant collaboration and the interaction you have with a diverse set of constituents. So deal teams within the firm, management teams at the companies that we talk to and that we own, our investors, our competitors that we cooperate with and compete with, boards of businesses that we're looking to buy, our operating partner group, the functional leaders in the firm. There's just so much collaboration and so much social interaction with really capable, passionate people that that, I think, today is what I love most about it. Fantastic. Well, Scott, thanks so much for sharing this deal. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.